Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to Wednesday Wisdom with Jimmy Warden. I'm your host, Jimmy Warden. On today's episode, I brought in my dear friend Lincoln Vamos to discuss polarity in politics. Lincoln is a graduate of St. Anselm College, where he earned dual degrees in political science as well as communications, which is why I felt like he was a fantastic person to have to discuss polarity in politics. We really take a deep dive into how this polarity has been created by both the Democratic and Republican parties, uh, as well as how society and culture have really shaped this polarity as well. And what we really tried to do is we really tried to discuss the facts and merely the facts, uh, just because we didn't want to become partisan in this discussion. So we really tried to look at both viewpoints and how both viewpoints have actually manifested this polarity. So if you're interested in these topics of conversation, stay tuned and you'll be hearing from us shortly after a word from our sponsors. All right, welcome everybody to the podcast. Uh, as promised, I have on my good friend here, Lincoln Vamos, and we are here to talk mostly about the polarity in politics today. Uh, so welcome, Lincoln. It's really great to have you on. Really great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. been uh, looking forward to this for about a week or so, and it's definitely a, uh, a good break of my week to be talking with somebody other than my roommates, because currently in Boston right now, and you know, it's looking like some quarantine measures might be put to effect soon. So, you know, not to talk too much about the virus, but, you know, kind of seems like we might be getting back in the swing of things. So any kind of change of pace is nice. Yeah, man, for sure. I feel like a lot of people are still feeling the effects of that, you know, regardless of their location. Uh, but like you said, especially in some of those more concentrated areas, like big cities such as Boston, you know, we can definitely feel the fact of, you know, having to settle into that quarantine with numbers kind of on the rise still and hopefully uh, we can as a nation get that squared away relatively soon um, can, mm -hmm. it's definitely kind of on the upward trend now but like you said we'll we'll try to stay on the on the main topic of you know this polarity in politics these days and when I was thinking about this because this is something I've been thinking about personally for a little while now um, you know, you were one of the first people that came to mind just because you do have, in my opinion, obviously, and I'm going to be a little partisan just because you and I go back to high school in terms of our friendship, but you've always been a pretty well-informed person when it comes to politics and specifically even like current events. I do remember in high school, um, you were always really on top of that as well. So it's kind of been almost like, it seems like a passion of yours. So uh, if you don't mind just kind of telling us a little bit about your background knowledge in politics uh, and or current events, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so it's always been a bit of a passion of mine. Um, you know, went to uh, St. Anselm College, graduated uh, 2017 with majors in uh, political science and communication. Um, so definitely kind of wanted to turn, you know, my passion into possibly a career kind of pursuing that a little bit now with uh possibly having law school on the horizon. Um, yeah, so then kind of chose St. A's for um, politics, you know, for that reason. So, you know, they're home to both the Republican and Democratic primary debates. Um, you know, last three or four cycles, they've had both parties come on campus, which was always, uh, 
which was always an event. You would always kind of see everybody. I mean, I remember specifically, it was pretty fun. We were sitting in my dorm room at St. A's and we saw Ted Cruz's bus roll up oh, right, wow. over, right in front of our dorm uh, with his tagline, cruising to victory. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, um, absolutely. Nice little play on words there. Yeah, I liked it. Um, that was fun. I mean, we'd always see, you know, I met Marco Rubio in the coffee shop, uh, Chris Christie, came into uh, one of our classes of mine, just sat in the back just to just to listen, I think be there and probably to get away from his campaign staff. Um, and then met, uh, saw Christy again in the uh, lunch line. He was getting food with us and we were talking uh, as with a lacrosse friend of mine. So I guess his uh, son was pursuing a lacrosse scholarship. So he was asking us, uh, you know, how best to go about that because he didn't know that world. Um, so it's pretty funny getting, you know, talking to Chris Christie and he was asking us for advice on anything because you see these guys as larger than life figures and they come down, they're super nice guys. And, you know, they definitely have some gravitas to them. Um, you know, when Christy kind of entered the room, he kind of has that big booming voice. Um, it was kind of interesting to meet those people and, you know, talk to them on any kind of personal level. Um, so San Ace was fantastic for that. Um, you would constantly have campaign managers coming in, giving talks, which you could, you know, go down to the political institutes on the um, kind of the end of our campus there. And something was always going on. It's, you know, John Kasich promoting a book or, you know, you know, I remember specifically in 2014 and 15, I felt like every politician would make a uh, convenient visit to New Hampshire because it just <laughs> happens to be the, you know, first in the nation primaries and they're selling some book or giving some talk um, when in reality of course they're doing that for news coverage and to get acquainted with New Hampshire voters so they can get an early win in a potential presidency run nice wow I mean that was that was huge I mean it definitely sounds like like you said there was always things happening they seem to be really big events uh, they happen relatively consistently and it was really cool also to hear you say how there is a level of humanity um, in these politicians because it's it's almost like today we're not seeing that necessarily um, in some cases just because of you know how the media may or may not be portraying certain stories or narratives uh, plot lines however you want to word sure. it um, but it's really promising to hear that that there are there are humans uh, within those politicians, even though we might kind of identify them as these larger than life political figures, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really great to hear. And just so that we can kind of, you talked a little bit too about how there's both Republicans and Democrats that would consistently visit to mm -hmm. uh, St. Anselm. So I was curious uh, if you could kind of go into the main main differences, you know, um, in Republican and Democratic, specifically policies, because I think, again, um, you know, with this polarity, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more as we, as we speak, but um, maybe we could just kind of, at least on paper, get some of those differences, you know, what it might look like on paper to say, you know, this is the criteria of somebody who is in the Republican Party, or this is the criteria of somebody who's in the Democratic Party, Democratic Party, or associates uh, with either one? What would be kind of some of the main ideas there? Sure, so, you know, scholarship kind of tends to break it down into, you know, really wants to simplify it. So it, more or less, it comes down to uh, government involvement 
in society um, in general. Of course, this is going to overgeneralize it, but Democrats want more government involvement. Republicans want less. Um, and of course, that's going to be, you're going to have some contradictions within that. Um, you know, perfect example would be, you know, if Republicans want uh, less government involvement, then theory, they should have no problem with um, any kind of abortion. But on the Democrat side, how can you be for abortion, again, in general, if you want uh, more government involvement in society? Um, so some of those kind of, it's not a perfect definition, like anything. Um, but, you know, you can kind of condense things down to, you know, if we kind of look at the top issue. So, you know, healthcare, Democrats want more government involvement, Republicans less, public education, more funding, more uh, involvement in public education, Republicans want, you know, a little more private sector, corporate regulation, uh, you know, and, and kind of, you know, foreign relations, you know, alliances, treaties, you, know, you can kind of break it down. And, you know, when you simplify it, it's, you know, the more democratic, you're going to want a little more involvement, um, a little more complex relations, perhaps. And on the Republican side, you want to simplify things, make the government small, you know, you kind of the famous line from Rand Paul, you want the uh, government small enough, you can drown it in a bathtub. <laughs> okay, so if I was so if I was hearing you correctly, um, it seems that regardless of what the policy might be, uh, the Democrats want more. Um, is it? We'll say, you know, when they're they want more of the decision making than the citizens. Is that how um, you meant? government involvement or am i misunderstanding that point because um i don't think that's an unfair description i would say i would probably lean it more towards uh increased regulation okay so so a little more increased rules so you know if you look at uh let's say corporate regulation for example uh republicans would lean more towards a kind of laissez-faire economics of you know not purely of course you know they you know monopolies notwithstanding but uh, Democrats will lean more towards, okay, let's have a lot of rules. So let's kind of keep things in line. Let's try to, you know, form some nets to keep everyone kind of on the straight and narrow to not let anybody get too big or not let unfair practices happen. Um, and Republicans are a little more, uh, the rules would be more lax in general. Um, they would kind of want them to be, you know, you can, their argument would of course be you can grow as big as you want with of course some limitations and, uh, you know, kind of whatever happens, happens, but with, of course, some limitations. Um, so neither side is, uh, you know, you could debate that until, you know, people's faces turn blue. But, um, you know, in general, that's sort of how you can break it down. And of course, like any of these, there's going to be some messy definitions where and some contradictions within each party. Um, but yeah, so I'd say just in general, Democrats want a little more government involvement, Republicans want a little bit less. Okay. And is that mostly, is that also, is that like in the terms of like the different levels, right? You know, there's, you know, federal, state, and local governments. Um, in terms of like those different levels, do you feel like those trends are similar? Um, I would say they're inconsistent. Okay. <laughs> when, uh, when Republicans have the presidency, they're very happy to use uh, kind of large federal rules to change state policies. Okay. And then when Democrats are in control, they also want, they want, you know, a little, little more 
federal control because they happen to have the White House. Um, so I'd say kind of both sides being a little uh, contradictory there, of course, and I think kind of depends on the era that you're looking at. Oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, that's kind of good to know. No, and it's really good to hear you kind of really voice out those differences between the Republican and Democratic parties, just because these days on not just the TV and news media, uh, but also social media, any place where people are really consuming this type of information, you know, we're seeing uh, terms such as right wing or left wing, you know, and the supposedly, you know, from at least what I've observed, and taken in is that the right wing is more Republican leaning, conservative leaning uh, thinking, whereas the left wing is more democratic, more open uh, way of thinking in terms of political views. Um, you know, do you agree with that statement that I just made? And you know, if so, maybe we could elaborate a little bit more on what it means to be right wing or left wing in terms of one's political views. Sure. So I think the the easy answer there is yes and no. So the problem with the, you know, is having one spectrum, you're either right wing or left wing, and there's a linear line that you can follow. And, you know, based on what question you answer on some online survey, you're going to go more on that side. So I don't think it works. There's too many contradictions and inconsistencies, especially in American politics. Um, I think we need to get a little away from that. Um, so a lot of political scholarship now is kind of looking at more as a, uh, a circle or at least, you know, having an X, Y axis. Um, it, you know, the kind of the left wing, right wing, it just, it doesn't make sense anymore. So, you know, let's just take a look at the extremes to kind of uh, show that out. So classical left or classical liberalism would almost be like the state's economy is more important than any individual. It's almost a utilitarian argument. So, you know, the greater good, um, you know, and then also you have on that same wing, you have socially less or no restrictions on social constructs or decisions. So uh, homosexuality, transgender rights, abortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then on classical right, you would have a little more, you would have more individual rights on the economy. Um, you know, almost, you know, at, again, at the extreme kind of social Darwinism happening in the economy or even in Ayn Rand philosophy where, you know, if possible, then morally secure. However, on the social side, it's almost the opposite uh, philosophy there where there's almost a religious devotion to the state, uh, you know, un uniformity in the collective. Um, so both sides on kind of the classical left, you have a, you know, the greater good and then on economically, but then on social reasons, they're the individual should have the rights. And then on the right side, so more conservatism, individual rights in the economy, but then the greater good on, for, on social issues. Um, so if you're kind of, you know, you can kind of see those contradictions at the extreme, which is why a lot of uh, kind of political scientists are kind of moving away from the classic, you know, left-right polarity, um, you know, linear meter there just doesn't make sense anymore. Um, you know, how can classical liberals justify intervention in the economy, but intervention in personal life is taboo? Um, for conservatives, it's just the opposite. Intervention in the personal life is justified, but never in the economy. Um, 
you know, so that's sort of why, you know, a lot of people are kind of looking at it as a circle. So, you know, the closer you get to one extreme, the closer you actually come to the other. So, you know, let's look at uh, economically for an example. So imagine you have two successful nations. One of them is full communism. So unbelievably far left. The other is full fascism. So unbelievably far right. In theory, if you're just looking at it on the um, left-right ideology scale, there's far apart as you can possibly get. Then if you actually look at them, both of them are heavily intervening in the economy. They both regulate its process. They mainly divide its work among its citizens, crush dissent, centralized ownership. They own the means of production. The economy is planned. Individuals have no value you know, outside of his or her role in society or the economy. Um, so, you know, the farther you kind of get on one side, the closer you are. It, it seems illogical, but then when you actually start studying it, they start to become more similar. So, I mean, you know, somewhat modern example, you can kind of see, you know, the Soviet Union and uh, Nazi Germany. Far apart, ide like ideologically, however, both their economies were you know, for the citizen itself, somewhat similar. You didn't have much of a choice in what you were doing. The state could intervene at any moment. And the goal was to secure the state as much as possible. They went about it in very different means, but the end result was the same. Um, so, you know, especially if you look at things economically, I think it's a little reductive to look at it on a simple left-right scale. Um, so they don't line up on social issues. They don't necessarily line up on economic issues. Um, I think it's a little messier than a lot of people like to think. Um, you know, even the, the perfect Republican candidate or the perfect Democrat candidate is never going to be perfectly left-wing or right-wing. Um, the perfect example of that was more recently, um, until 20, you know, during the 20, you know, 15, 16, so especially during the Clinton and uh, Trump election, you had the party switch sides on issues such as, uh, you know, foreign trade. Before that, Democrats were much more, um, they wanted to be more secure, you know, for reasons of manufacturing on foreign trade to make sure that, you know, other company, other countries weren't taking advantage of us. Then all of a sudden Donald Trump comes in and has that same idea and you see the party switch. And is that illogical? Probably. However, when you see leaders do that, you start, everyone starts going in their ideological corner. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of just inconsistencies on both sides. So kind of having that one scale just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it was an interesting, you know, a couple of interesting ideas that you brought up there in terms of, especially with uh, Nazi Germany and the old Soviet Union. So just for maybe people that might not be as informed, um, so, uh, the Soviet Russians, they were more left, so to say, on the, on the, on paper, whereas, uh -huh. you know, obviously not Nazi Germany being completely fascist under the rule of Hitler. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, yes, yeah, so they're almost good. They, had, they had very similar outcomes, right? Because right. there was, you know, there was the whole when Hitler took over, there was so much 
so much death and so much violence, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of his reign and his regime, you know, all and, for the good of the state. Right. Supposedly, right. Supposedly just because of those radical viewpoints. And, you know, there was upwards of, I believe it was 6 million, you know, 6 million Jewish people were killed mm-hmm. in these concentration camps. And yet people failed to also look at what happened in Soviet Russia too, you know, where you said like there was that, uh, deathless, that, that similar in terms of, even though they were opposite, there was a lot of similarities going on and they too even had concentration camps, you know, where people, if they weren't fulfilling society's duty, like of them, you know, they were placed in these camps and, and there were millions, millions of people again, that just brutally murdered and just like worked to death. And I think that's something that people forget a little bit is when, you know, they're saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm leaning more this way, or I'm leaning more that way. It's like, be careful of how far you lean, right? I think that was kind of the idea I think you were trying to touch upon. And in terms of, it sounds like what makes some politicians more appealing than others is being able to almost, and not completely, you know, because whatever party they represent, they do need to kind of stick within more of that regime. But it's like, if they're able to appeal to some type of medium on either side, then they're more likely to extract votes. Is that kind of what it seems to be going towards as far as, you know, because like, I mean, society is very, you know, society itself is just very polarized but have you noticed Mm. like any particular reasons that even though it seems like some of the parties aren't necessarily becoming polarized like do we think it's Mm -hmm. more of a societal thing that's happening right now or do you think it's more of an actual political political idea in terms of this polarization between the two even though like we've just discussed there are some similarities yeah so i think uh the parties are becoming more polarized. I think you can, um, I think that's pretty easy to, to say. Um, as far as why, I think there's a couple reasons. Um, one, a lot of media, people are consuming more media than they ever have. I mean, a uh, hundred years ago, you had your newspaper come on Sunday. Between Monday and Saturday, a lot of people won't think about politics again. Um, it didn't necessarily touch their lives in the same way. Um, and now you have cable news, you have social media, you're constantly connected. You know, we, we know every single tweet that the president is sending. Um, we're kind of constantly connected in that way. So it is becoming a little more, uh, there's some pop culture elements that are happening. And then on top of that, the parties are becoming more polarized. Um, as far as why though, you can, it's getting pretty easy. So if you just look at our system with within the two-party system you have primaries right and within that you're going to have let's say a democratic primary uh let's just say for a senate race a state senate race you're not five or six democrats fight it out and only democrats are voting for those democrats and then people are surprised when the most democrat wins that election Meanwhile, you also have a Republican primary going on, and then the the most Republican will, in theory, win out of all those other Republican candidates, and then they happen to meet, and then everybody is shocked how far apart they are. So that's why you see a lot of, 
you know, the general trend in this is each party will, you know, you kind of saw that in, um, especially in the latest Democratic primary, you had Joe Biden shift a little bit left to make sure he could win. And then the second the primary was over, he shifts back to the middle. You saw Mitt Romney doing that. You saw Obama in 08, or I guess 07, and then into 08 do that. Um, it's fairly typical, and it's sort of the it's the model now that these guys have to follow. Because if you campaign as a centrist in one of these literally non-centrist parties, you can't win. So then these, you know, all these candidates, they have to track more towards, the, they try to track more towards the middle afterwards to then attract more voters, but it's, it's becoming like unsustainable. On top of that, you have gerrymandering, which is, you know, becoming a hot button issue. Um, it's causing a lot of problems. Um, so let's say 2018, for example, uh, it was a democratic wave election in the house. Um, Democrats won the house and they ended up with 250. 30 House members, something like that, maybe 235. And the only Republicans essentially that were left were in landslide districts. Because I think it was a eight and a half point Democratic environment. So, you know, for the most part, any Republican that was in a uh, congressional district that was 8.4% Republican or less lost. So the only Republicans that were left were in landslide districts. And then if you start looking at ideology, like ideology scales, of course, they're the most extreme. They came out of the most extreme um, congressional districts. And the same thing happened after 2010 when Republicans swept the House and pushed out all the uh, kind of 50-50 districts that Democrats were holding before that. The only Democrats that were left were in the safe districts. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, who's the, you know, con congressional Democrat out of New York or Boston or San Francisco. Well, of course they're safe. But, and even, you know, going back to kind of connect that with the primaries, the only way that those people can win are to be the most Democrat or the most Republican. And on top of that, so after the 2010 um, uh, census, so every 10 years, they move the congressional districts around. The, the absolute number is static, however, they, uh, if you have 10 electoral votes, you're going to have 10, um, actually you have eight districts in that case, but you'd have eight districts within your state. Whoever happens to own the state house and in some states, the governorship gets to draw those districts. And of course, let's say a Democrat owns, you know, let, you know I'm in Massachusetts, so let's use Massachusetts as an example. With the way the districts are drawn, it's more or less impossible for a Republican to ever win a federal office in Massachusetts. So they've gerrymandered it to the point where they're looking at, okay, this city is, uh, you know, 65% Republican. That's trouble. All right, let's combine this with these uh, 18 neighborhoods that are 75% Democrat. That's going to cancel out the population. Any Democrat, you know, unless we lose an election by 10%, we're still safe. So you're seeing all these districts that are designed and, and you know, uh, you know, huge like, you know, statisticians are coming in and drawing these districts to get as many safe districts for their party as they possibly can. So you have, you know, packing and cracking. So what a lot of states do, 
um, especially in, uh, let's look at Tennessee, for example. They only have two Democratic districts, and you can probably guess where they are. They're in Nashville and Memphis. And they basically just consolidate an entire congressional district into one city itself. That city is going to go 85% Democrat. And then it turns out you have no more Democratic votes outside of that. So then they split the districts up outside of that into safe Republicans. So then in Tennessee, I think they have, I can't remember the actual um, districts on, on top of my head, but outside of those two Democratic districts, they're safe Republican. You can pretty much run anybody you want and they're going to win and it's not going to be close. So, you know, with that, you kind of have the parties are going to become more polarized because in a safe Republican district, you know, you're not, you know, you have no problems in the general, so you don't have to track in the middle. So you can run the most Republican campaign. If you're in a Republican safe district, you can run the most Republican campaign you can make sure you win. And typically that's going to be a very conservative campaign. And then you come out to the general and you have no problems to worry about. Um, so with kind of gerrymandering on top of our primary system, the parties are going to be more polarized. Um, and you can even kind of see that drawn out. Um, there's a great paper by the, I think it's the uh, Brookings Institute, where they've looked at the average ideology of the House and the Senate from 1947 to uh, 2014. And you can see that the Republicans have gotten much more, they've about doubled their, uh, uh, on their score at least, they've become twice as conservative mm. and Democrats have become uh, a little less than twice as liberal. It, it's, you can see it in the numbers and you know I don't see a path out of that necessarily right. um, within our system and I think it's going to stay. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, that there's all of that behind, almost like behind the scenes work going on that we're just not always aware of, you know, that, like you said, in terms of the people that are in charge of creating those districts, you know, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican has a very strong influence on how that district is created and in terms of, you know, who like what type of people are located where and, and what what pocket of of the mm-hmm. state are they a part of and what what does that pocket then represent as like that greater whole? You know, it's pretty interesting because <clears throat> I think I've even seen some statistics too, just I think with people, not necessarily with politicians, but I think even just like society in general in terms of how how do you see the other side? And And I think there are some similar numbers happening in terms of, you know, if someone were to identify with democratic views, you know, they, they think that the person that identifies with these Republican views is like you said, that much more conservative or like that much more on the right and stands for other things. And I think that's almost like, you know, and I'm trying to make that connection. I think it's almost like people are identifying it you know, and it's making it a part of them, right? There's definitely some personality. Yeah. And like our social identities and, and, and that is part of it for sure. And, you know, I, I totally understand that perspective and like getting that perspective of like, where are you within like this social 
hierarchy, right? Because we actually have like, you know, our neurotransmitters as far as uh, dopamine and serotonin, Mm -hmm. more specifically, though, serotonin is, is a, is a, it literally fires, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or does not fire. Um, when you recognize where you're at within the certain social hierarchy, and maybe we can even think of it as like that district or that pocket that you live in, right? Because that's what's surrounding you. That's your environment. And so with that, like your level of serotonin also influences your ability to manifest and have positive emotion. And so if your serotonin levels are low, like you're just going to be super depressed, Mm -hmm. right? And so I almost feel like going back to like this identity piece of it, right? Like people want to have something to stand for and like something to fight for, because again, going back to the serotonin piece, like if you're willingly fighting for your position to move Mm -hmm. up that social hierarchy and like move up that food chain on a bigger, more more metaphorical level, right? your serotonin is actually going to increase because it, it's you're progressing towards a goal. And, and I think it's like everybody's goals, you know, we look at them individually and then we look at them collectively. And I think a lot of it now is because this, the Western society is a lot more individualistic versus mm-hmm. um, you know, some of those Eastern societies where they're more collective within their philosophy and way of being and life and how to live your life but no this sort of reminds me of um uh, i think you'll find this study interesting too with um you know your interest in psychology so there's a study done uh during the 2004 election so john Kerry versus w bush and they held uh they had democrats and republicans receive mris during the debates um during the live debate so they hadn't heard them before and when uh, when the Democrats, when they were looking at the Democratic uh, subjects during the debates, when John Kerry was speaking to the Democrat, the logic centers of the brains were firing. When George W. Bush was speaking, the emotional centers of the brains were firing. So there's even, there's a lot of studies being done where, you know, you know there's a lot of talk of, you know, how can we move together, but there's some issues psychologically that we might not be able to get past. Yeah. And if you hear the other party speak, your logic, the you know, the logic centers of your brain don't even activate. How can you how so, can we ever move forward? And the same was of yeah. course on the Republican side. Right. So with that, and I and it's got because it's got me thinking, because you said that you said that when Kerry was speaking, Kerry the Democrat, mm-hmm. the rational that that you so like probably more like areas in your prefrontal cortex as far as like decision making were firing, mm-hmm. right? And he's democratic, whereas uh, George Bush is Republican and you said the emotional system. So perhaps like the amygdala, I believe it's the amygdala controls your emotions. Mm-hmm. I almost would have thought it was opposite with like the way, right. at least in terms of I, how I understand it. And I feel like how like a lot of other people understand it, because like think if we think about what at least like today's Democrats stand for, like you were saying, they definitely stand for a lot more of those individualistic rights of like the, you know, L, L and I, gosh, I'm going to, I'm not going to butcher this. I'm going to try my best not to, but the the LBGTQ plus community, right? They stand for that community specifically and ensuring that they have equal rights as far as marriage, um, you know, an expression of self. And, you know, they stand for the Black Lives Matter, again, really trying to, and again, obviously we, there's a lot of work that needs to be done regardless of what happens, but 
going back to you know where they're standing these these political parties and these political figures the left is definitely standing more for the the open individual the individual the, the freedom of expression for that individual right and like you said they're they're kind of honing down so to say again overgeneralizing here with the honing down like really trying to control more of those larger um larger groups such as police force or such as business uh, big businesses and the republicans are are flip-flopped on that where as far as like the individual expression of self that they they limit that and they, sure. they don't limit they don't limit as much as far as like the businesses and the police force because that's it. and again just from my understanding and please feel free to correct me if i'm wrong but that's what they're more willing to spend um money on you know in terms of like the their tax mm-hmm. dollars that we as a society contribute uh that's where a lot of those bits of money are going at least again if, I, if i'm wrong please correct me but no i i think you're right on that but you can kind of start seeing the inconsistencies of both sides coming back um yeah. you know democrats are perfectly fine with government intervention in the economy but they don't want it in many aspects of the personal life but not every um republicans don't want a ton of intervention in the economy but they're okay with many uh interventions in the personal life with the big exception and you know not to hit top button issues but you start getting weird inconsistencies on uh you know abortion rights and gun control yeah where ideologically each party is flip-flopped it doesn't make sense that a liberal would want uh no control on abortion but control on guns meanwhile it makes no ideological sense if you're again if we're looking at which i think is an outdated and uh doesn't work on the you know the linear right left scale the right would have uh you know more control over abortion but no control over guns it it, it sort of just points to there's some inconsistencies going on um with that scale which i think makes things messy and it's kind of hard to for everyone to wrap their head around just going to take a quick break to hear a word from another one of our sponsors. Yeah, I hear you. Cause like you said, it's not just one side or the other. There's a lot more that needs to get put into consideration. So, you know, just trying to transition into one of our, we have a few questions left that I was just kind of hoping we could go through, but you know, why does it, so going back to this idea that we were just kind of talking about, hopefully we can build upon it. Like, do you feel like, society has become polarized when it comes to their political stances because it's starting to become more of an identity issue versus a party issue because i feel like that's what it seems to me right now where it's like people are associating their identities also with the political party that they may or may not associate with and therefore have very highly emotional responses to those um, events of the other party or words or actions of the other party or their own party. Um, so it seems to me, it's almost more of like an identity issue in the sense of, you know, this is me, right? Not like this is a part of me. 
So do you feel like it's kind of becoming more of that rather than actual policy versus policy? Well, it's the culture war, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we can talk economic policy, we can talk, uh, you know, the, the rationale or the inconsistencies between social issues and their connection with economics. But a lot of the, you know, especially since the 2016 election, a lot of it, it kind of comes to cultural identity and the culture war. So, you know, if you look at, uh, let's use Colin Kaepernick's um, kneeling during the national anthem as an example. Sure. 90% of Republicans disagreed with that. 75% of Democrats agreed with it. That became a kind of bellwether issue in the political world for right or wrong. Should, you know, should our greatest politicians be caring what one NFL player does? Probably not, but it represented something different and gave people something to talk about. So of course the news media ran with it. Um, so it is kind of becoming, it's symbology in the end, you know, who do you identify with? You know, there's uh, a lot of studies where, you know, the there's a great uh, study done, I believe his name is uh, uh, Bill Bishop. It's called The Problem with Ohio. So between, I think it was from the 70s until uh, 2004, if you ran purely economic, um, uh, an economic model, Ohio voted against their own interests in every single presidential election for it was either 20, it was like 20 or 30 years. They voted against their own interests economically. So a lot of political scientists start looking at that and start to wonder what's happening here because it doesn't make sense. They're voting absolutely against their own wallet here. It was culture. You know, you start seeing you know, self-sorting, political self-sorting. So you start seeing um, Ohio's kind of the bellwether of that. If you start seeing Democrats and more, you know, more professionals moving into the cities, more Republicans, more blue-collar workers moving out into the suburbs, out into the rural parts of the country. And eventually they started saying they would only ever see each other. So if you're a Democrat living in, let's use Columbus as an example to stick in Ohio, you're only ever seeing other Democrats. Right. And if you're in, uh, you know, 50 miles outside of Columbus or 50 miles south of Cleveland, you're only ever running into other Republicans. Right. So how can you, how can you identify with someone that you never see? It's always, it's the other. It's, you know, those guys out there that I, you know, see on SNL that they're making sketches about, about it's, you know, those guys that I see on Twitter that are, you know, comic book characters, essentially. Um, it's, it's, you know, the self-sorting is becoming an issue. And, you know, it's just becoming kind of a lot more obvious with, um, you know, kind of seeing the 2020 returns. I can see uh, the vote spread of Democrats are really concentrating in the cities. Right. And more urban and exurban areas. Um, Republicans are more spread out. They're more in, more in the suburbs, more in the rural yep. parts of the country. And so each side is starting to only ever interact with themselves. And it creates this feedback loop 
because when it's a uh, more of a communication theory, but it's the spiral of silence. So you can you know apply this to let's say your Facebook friends. Let's say I'm a uh, suburban dad living 30 miles outside of Kansas City. Pretty much the only people I'm gonna know on my kids' soccer team are a bunch of other Republicans. Let's say I'm a Democrat in that scenario. Yeah. 80% of my friends are Republicans. So all I'm going to see on Facebook are a lot of Republican posts, a lot of Republican media. The incentive to go out against the herd is very low. You're going to lose friendships. You're going to get a lot of angry comments. You're going to, there's just no point. However, if you're in the 80%, it looks more like 99% because all you're seeing are the Republican posts because all the Democrats are wanting to stay silent. Same thing if you're a Republican living in New York City. There's no way that, you know, all the people, you know, I'm making things up. Let's say you work for uh, Spotify, because I think last time I was in New York, I saw the great Spotify office close to the World Trade Center. Sure. Looks like a great location. Love to work there. Spotify, if you're listening, please hire me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, probably the only people there or the vast majority of people there are going to be liberal Democrats, right? Yeah. If you're a Republican, it's going to hurt your business relationships. It's going to hurt your personal relationships Yeah. to to start sharing or speaking about, you know, Republican ideology. And so you start saying – staying silent on social media and your personal life about your own political ideology. So then you even perceive that all your friends are more in that scenario are more Democrat than they actually are because all the other Republicans in your friend group that you might not even know about are staying silent for the same reasons you are. So it's becoming this feedback loop that is troublesome in the larger American society, especially with um, kind of the advent of social media. Yeah, it's uh, really, really great arguments you brought up there. It, it definitely seems like it's, you know, from what you said and from what we've been gathering, it really has become just such a such a culture war. And, and we're also, you know, as human beings, you know, some of our primordial instincts are like, I need to feel a sense of belonging, like I need to be mm-hmm. part of some tribe, right? And again, I'm, I'm talking like primordial, like, back when yeah. you know the ice age and people are literally right. hunting to live like to survive you want other people to hunt with you <laughs> yeah right and you want to you want to feel like you have value and you have meaning and you know like you said if if speaking out on your political views takes that away from you you're more likely to not do that especially in some of those more concentrated areas of the opposite views so it's it's really hard for people it seems like to have these types of conversations and i know you know you and i we're just we're just honestly good friends and you know fortunately enough we don't really butt heads on too many of these issues just because we're you know we're a little bit more i'll say like left leaning in our thought processes but at the same token it doesn't mean everything on the right is completely invalid you know sure no side has a uh, you know, I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but um, you know, no side has a monopoly on good ideas. Right. Uh, the problem becomes when you know there's no room for negotiating, and you see that in Congress because if you are a 
you know, the days of, you know, the smoky back rooms where, you know, guys are sharing bourbon and cigars and horse trading on policies are over. That worked in 1824 when you could, when you, you know, if you were a uh, congressman from Western Kentucky, you didn't really have to answer to your home district too often. Now you have to fly back every weekend. Now you have to explain every single move you're making. Right. And there's more polarization on top of that. So if you're, let's say you're a Lindsey Graham, a senator out of South Carolina, you're going to have a lot of trouble making any kind of deal with Ed Markey, not out of any sense of this idea is bad, because you then have to go back to South Carolina and explain how the hell you made a deal with Ed Markey. And that's tough to do, especially when these guys are facing uh, primaries every, uh, if you're in the Senate every six years, or you're in the House every two years, you're going to have a primary against you. And if you're a, especially in the House, if you start making, if you start doing a lot of horse trading, you're going to get killed in a primary. Yeah, so How can you come back and- Horse trading there. Sure. So it could be, um, you know, let's say, you know, there's a lot of talk with, um, you know, the Biden administration coming in that a infrastructure deal might be the first thing on the table. So there's a lot of bipartisanship on infrastructure it creates a lot of jobs. It creates a lot of, you know, movement in the economy. Everybody seems to like trains. So, it, it, you know, there's a lot of easy, you know, there's, there's some low hanging fruit there. However, there's going to be some horse trading on where and how it's done. Uh. If you're a senator out of South Carolina, you probably, let's say, you know, they want to do high-speed rail, for example. To get, let's say you're the swing vote and you're a, a senator from South Carolina, you have a lot of leverage in that scenario. Then you can say, yeah, sure, I'll vote for you, but I need, you know, on this current deal, I only have you know, $20 million of funding, I want a billion or a high-speed rail between Raleigh and Charleston, or I'm not voting for it. Oh. And then they can do it. And so there's that negotiation. Exactly. But that's becoming harder and harder to do because all of a sudden, you know, I keep using Lindsey Graham as an example. If you're going to try to do that, then in six years, he's going to get hammered in a Republican primary making any kind of deal with the democrats because it's such a republican state so there's less and less incentive for these kind of bipartisan deals to happen all right yeah it's interesting so i guess yeah definitely like you said it seems to be there's some things happening both on a societal level in terms of support uh with these candidates uh but also there is some you know some gerrymandering um at least, and then like, you know, at least back in the day, there was some negotiation behind the scenes, but it seems like now the, so the gerrymandering is still present in terms of trying to sway votes and swing attention. Uh, whereas these uh, back deal horse trades, as you say, are less likely to happen because they would actually lose those votes that they worked to earn through their gerrymandering. Exactly. Because you now live in such a Republican district, right. you have to answer to, you know, quote unquote, extreme Republican or extreme Democratic views. Um, so it becomes an issue um, very quickly. So you can kind of see these, you know, there's, it's all these feedback loops, right? Yeah. You have to keep, 
it just keeps this kind of, you know, a lot of people are kind of thinking of the U.S. government, just this like form of just sustained just animation of just sitting still and these feedback loops are just holding it up. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we don't get anywhere else in this conversation, I hope everybody knows that life is just one big feedback loop. So <laughs> you've got to figure it out, right? I know that's what we're trying to do, at least a little bit here, but awesome, man. I mean, those are some really great points and it makes me think, right? And, you know, this is a perfect segue of like, do you ever see, like, do you think the United States is ever going to move away from this two-party system that's creating all this polarity and all this division, not only in society, but in, in politics themselves, the people who are partaking in this? So if, um, you know, if I want anyone to take one thing out of this conversation is that a third party will never be sustainable in the United States of America. Why do you say that? Single member district voting. Uh, so single member district voting means it's winner take all. You need a plurality plus one to win the election. So, you know, with, so, you know, for example, a, you know, Joe Biden could have theoretically won with 1% of the vote if a thousand other people got 0.9% of the vote. Right. That's winner take all. So Joe Biden could win. It's, uh, and in, you know, when political scientists have uh, looked historically, any, um, there's never been a sustainable third party in, in a, government that's single member district voting it has never ever ever been sustainable you might have one election where a third party does pretty well you know relatively recently we had ross perot make a serious run in uh in 92 with the hw and clinton election there um however it's not sustainable because very quickly you can look at it you know again you know with your interest in psychology it becomes pretty obvious as to why um Let's say the, let's use the 2020 example, uh, or 2020 election, for example. Let's say uh, Mark Cuban came out as a libertarian candidate and started making a serious run and got on the debate stage and started pulling people away. The issue is, if he's a libertarian, he's probably pulling more Republicans away from Trump than Democrats away from Biden. So in that scenario, let's say he pulls half the Republicans away and 10% of the Democrats away from Biden. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, Donald Trump has 25%. Um, Cuban has, well, 10% from Democrats, let's say 30%. Joe Biden wins with 40-some-odd percent of the election and probably wins 390 electoral votes. So very quickly, and if you're, you know, in that scenario, if you're a Republican, you're seeing it, you know, okay, now we're losing all of these votes to Cuban. Suddenly, Biden is up by 25%. It's unsustainable. So it might work for one election, but then very quickly, the parties are going to realign to try to squash that. And who knows, maybe in that scenario, the Republican Party falls apart and turns into the Libertarian Party. However, there's going to be two parties. Because if in, a, in that scenario where people, the next election, again, stick with this example, if you were someone who voted for Trump or Mark Cuban in my made up 2020 election nerd fantasy, you would have no incentive. You're eventually just going to pick the lesser of two evils. 
because you know right. if you stick with Cuban at 20% and Trump was at 30 or something, eventually you're going to go, okay, my stance is unsustainable. I need to move my vote to make sure I would rather have Trump than Biden. Therefore, I'm going to vote for Trump and move him up. And then all of a sudden, the third party support falls apart. That's why it doesn't work. It has never worked in any single member district uh, voting system in the world. And, um, you know, every four years we start seeing people who want to, you know, try to bring third parties into the mix. And it's just unsustainable. It might work once. It might even work twice, but it's never long term sustainable. The only you have to have two parties Um, as much as I think it'd be good. It just doesn't work. The only way it does work is in um, is in systems uh, of parliament where if you get 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the seats in the parliament. And that way it makes sense. And then you go in and start horse trading and say, you know, sure, we'll join your coalition if you give us X, Y, and Z. Um, but in a winner take all, you don't have to do that as much. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to think like that. So, it, 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 you know, a third party just cannot be sustainable in the United States. Well, that's fair. So, I mean, and it's, but it sounds like you're also pretty set on there not really being a change around the two party system. You don't necessarily see people just, you know, get rid of the both the parties and people just running for, you know, certain uh, stances and, and, and important issues such as, you know, the ones that we've mentioned earlier of, you know, sexuality and identification rights, mm-hmm. um, you know, abortion or, or no abortion, education, um, you know, how the economy is functioning. So you don't necessarily see the parties going away and individuals taking stances on those fronts, you see it more of gonna, it's gonna continue because, is it because of this winner take all model? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's just no way to really move out of that situation. Um, you're gonna see parties move um, and kind of, you know, the, the ground is gonna shift onto them and then they're gonna start changing. Um, you know, if you look at old election tapes, like I do, because I'm a huge nerd, um, you see the 1980 Republican uh, primary debates. They were debating each other on who could be nicer to immigrants. Any single one of those would have been destroyed in a 2016 or a, it didn't happen, or a 2020 Republican primary. Right. Um, so you, you know, the parties are going to shift. They're going to, you know, give a little on this issue, give a little on that issue, you know, switch some uh, some smaller tactical stuff on the sides here to get more suburban voter, more urban voter, you know, uh, you know, to make some Pennsylvania uh, people happy because um, that's always the swing state. Um, so you're going to see, you know, things at the margin change. But, you know, I think for the most part, the way we're looking at it now is probably how it's going to look in 30 to 40 years. And you mentioned, yeah, and you mentioned um, the immigration, like if like if a uh, person that was running in 1980 were to debate somebody who was running in, you know, 2016 or even 2020 now, that they would get torn apart. Is that because it's a bigger issue now than it was back then? Or like in terms of like the hot topic and what people's mm-hmm. attention is geared towards? I think it's partly that. I think it's partly both parties have shifted more towards their ideological corner. Um, so the... You know, and you can 
just look at it by watching the tapes. I mean, right. The 1980 primaries were less conservative than the 2016 primaries. The 1980 Democratic primaries were less liberal than the uh, 2020 or 2016 primaries. Yeah. Um, you know, both parties just moving. Polarization happening. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obvious to see because um, both sides were a little more. They're a little more concerned with uh, trying to govern as a moderate in those stages, kind of up until Reagan. And, and you can see it happening in real time. Wow. So, I mean, what what is your hope, I guess, you know, uh, now that we've kind of put that behind us in the back burner for now? I mean, what is your hope for the future of the United States in terms of government? And like, it seems like this form is is here to stay, which... Hmm. obviously we all we all stand for democracy but specifically like this two-party system too i mean it's kind of the model and the structure you know what what are your hopes for for our future um you know i wish i could be a little more uh give you a little bit of a happier note but i'm somewhat of a pessimist for our future here um there's a lot of issues going on so the republicans have not won the popular vote in uh, for the presidency, they've lost the or, sorry, they've lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. That's unsustainable. What's also unsustainable is for Democrats to keep moving to cities and basically giving the Senate to Republicans every single time. Because you've seen a lot of movement, just you know, economic mobility is increased. But uh, you know, if you're a Democrat in Iowa, you're probably going to move to new york um so you're starting to see some of those uh issues come in so let's look at i mean just some of the 2020 returns and you know you can glean a lot from the 2016 college education was one of the more uh you know one of the easiest indicators to understand where you voted if you have a college education in general you're going to be um the less likely you are to live in a rural area right uh, because you you know you there's many reasons, but one of them is it's hard to use a college education in a rural area. Yeah, these are uh, just facts. Like this isn't sure, like, so you, you know, where yeah, so you, yeah, so you start to kind of see, well, when, if that happens over, like it has been over 20 to 30 years, you start seeing these monster pockets of, of Democratic votes in these cities and all that's left in the rural states of, you know, Wyoming, Nebraska, you name one. The only people left there are Republicans. Right. So you start to see those issues, then, you know, currently, you know, states like Wisconsin are a swing state. Um, that's somewhat unsustainable under this model of Democrats moving to urban areas and leaving all the Republicans behind in the rural areas to keep just increasing their vote totals. Um, so you start to see a wider and wider split between the popular vote and the, um, the Electoral College, because remember, it's winner take all. So Joe Biden can win the popular vote by, it, you know, looks like it's going to be five or six million. And right. the election was close. Hillary Clinton won it by two or three million and lost the Electoral College. Um, and meanwhile, in the Senate, you have, you know, even more ability to have, um, you know, divided government for the future because Wyoming gets the same amount of senators than California does. Right. Now, this was intentional by the um uh, by the framers of the Constitution, of course. Yes. But it's leading to bigger and bigger issues when, you know, two senators in Wyoming are representing 
150,000 people each and two centers in California are running 30 million people each. Yeah. So it starts to, you know, just kind of gaming this down the line under the current circumstances. It looks like Democrats are going to keep cleaning up at the presidential level and keep losing at the Senate level. Right. We're going to keep having these, you know, divided governments that are more or less not talking to each other. Yeah. And then with, I mean, with the house in the house of representatives too. And from my mm-hmm. understanding, you know, each state gets a different amount of representation mm-hmm. based on their population. Right. How right. much, I mean, how much clout do they have in the legislative branch in terms of, you know, speaking with the Senate and trying to work with the Senate to form new policies? I mean, what, I, I don't really have a whole lot of insight as, as far as that goes. Cause I feel like wouldn't they play at least some factor or not as much? Hmm. Um, somewhat. So, you know, right now under the current, the Democratic House and Republican Senate, um, a lot of legislation goes to the Senate to die. So the Democrats will put up some bill and then Mitch McConnell, essentially, you know, the House or the Senate Majority Leader will more or less look at it and laugh and say, this is not going to get through the Senate. Um, yeah. And that's more or less going to be sustained. And remember, every... So we just had the 2020 census. Um, hope everybody filters out. So the point of that is to understand how many, where people are and how many people are there. Right. And then they base house districts based on that population. And then within the next few months here, each state is going to be um, redrawing their districts. So in 2010, a huge Republican year, you had some very... Uh, Republican-leaning state houses after that, because it was right after Obama. Obamacare at the time was very unpopular. And they were able to, Wisconsin is kind of the prime example of that, of where now it's pretty difficult for a uh, a Democrat to win um, a congressional election outside of Milwaukee. Um, I think in 2018, the Democrats combined won 60% of the vote in the house elections and only won one seat. Oh, wow. Took the other six. Wow. Um, so that's sort of the perfect example of gerrymandering there where they can kind of draw the districts out, pack all the Democrats together yeah, and do that. Now it's, uh, there's a governor, there's a Democrat governor of Wisconsin. So the districts are gonna be less Republican, but he, they're gonna have to negotiate with each other and we'll see how that pans out. Um, but every 10 years, I mean, these numbers are going to move around and, uh, you know, the House is going to be somewhat more neutral. Um, I think right now the number that most people stick with is Democrats have to win the popular vote in the nation by about 5% to win the House by exactly one seat. Um, so, yeah, so they have to keep, they have a little bit less margin of error to work with than the Republicans do. Um, so I think you're going to kind of see that stay out. I mean, both parties are kind of unsustainable in their current form. You know, after the 2012 um, loss by the Republicans, you know, they had their autopsy, um, you know, the Mitt Romney lost. And they sort of, they realized, you know, at the time their thinking was, we cannot keep doing this bad with immigrants, or not immigrants, rather, um, with uh, people of color, but especially um, Latinx immigrants because then we're going to start losing Texas. We're going to keep, we're going to start losing Arizona, which they just did. We're going to keep losing New Mexico and Colorado. 
And you're starting to see that play out with states like Georgia and Arizona swing. However, on the Democrat side, you can't keep losing uh, white voters without a college degree because to win the White House, you need to win enough of them to get, you know, to get your electoral college advantage. So, you know, under this current system of Democrats just keep cleaning up people with college degrees, keep getting killed people without it. There's not enough people with college degrees in Wisconsin to keep doing that. If you keep on this trend, you're going to you're going to start losing Wisconsin all the time. You're going to start losing Michigan all the time. Pennsylvania, Philly might be able to save you sometimes. Um, so you're going to start just seeing this coastal plane where, you know, you can kind of start to game it out pretty easy over the next 20, 30 years where, you know, if a state has a big city, it will vote Democrat, if not Republican. I mean, you can just kind of start making these like if else statements and start gaming it out. And it's, uh, it's becoming problematic and both parties are going to have to shift a little bit on that to keep winning. And they will, of course, because they're, you know, the party's one goal is to win elections, right? So they'll figure that out on their own and move, you know, start shifting a little bit, but it's going to get interesting, you know, kind of as we see this move on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting too, that you're talking about trying to make some of those if then statements and, and look through it, like through a, a scientific lens, or like a researcher's lens of, you know, cause and effect and different patterns of not even just movement of people, but, you know, what are, what are the demographics of those people mm-hmm. and, you know, what, what uh, entices them in terms of political candidates. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely very interesting to think about, you know, I, I would like to think that, you know, like you were saying how some of these pieces of not, not extremism, but like just leaning a little bit more one way than the other, it's not super sustainable, you know, given that, I mean, I'd like to hope that there's like a mathematical saying of like everything eventually digresses or maybe not digresses, but eventually comes back to the mean, right? Right. That average, so to say, and I'm not saying that, you know, politics or policy should be, should be average, but like at some point in time, I feel like there's got to be some type of medium reached where, I mean, I know you, there's also that saying of you can't make everybody happy. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd like to think that hopefully some point down the road, I know you were, you were even tra- trajecting like 30 years, like 40 years down the road, you don't necessarily see a whole lot changing and, in what's happening just because of how the trend has been like going back to what we've talked about earlier, where we said, you know, in the, in the eighties, that debate on immigration was very Mm -hmm. conservative from both ends in the sense of like what they're going to do. That was almost more of like a meeting in the middle in a way. Whereas now it's like two very different viewpoints of what they'll allow, what they won't allow, what are they going to do to prevent, what are they, or what are they going to do to um, open up certain areas? So it's like, 
if there's this happening, I mean, do you, you really, so you really don't see it kind of coming back to more of that, that more conservative type of view on either side where like they still have their core values, we'll say as political parties, but also trying to, to hit other issues. I, I don't, I, th- I think the culture war is kind of here to stay. Um, yeah. It's too easy now, especially with the kind of political self-sorting um, where, you know, we, you know, we've been talking about feedback loops all night here, but where, you know, if you're in, if you're a Democrat in a city, you're going to keep wanting, you know, you want more gun control because there might be, I don't know, some government coming in to do whatever. Um, you're going to see, you're going to see impact from government spending in a, you know, big, beautiful, brand new building. Um, if you're out in, you know, rural America, the police isn't there to save you every second. Right. So you're going to be you know, very hesitant on any kind of gun control, you're not necessarily going to see all the government spending. You might see a bridge or two every decade, but it's, you know, these feedback loops are, are there for a reason. It's going to, I think it's going to keep staying there, especially with, you know, social media is only going to get bigger here and, you know, political, you know, parties and partisans are really good at, using it and providing good information and misinformation at the same time. Um, they're only going to get better. And I think, I think what we're seeing now is almost just a taste of how it's going to get. Um, I mean, is it, is that sustainable for the United States over a longer period of time? I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, we, you know, the constitution has worked for, you know, 250 some odd years, but, can it keep going? I mean, it just, it is an old document. Um, you know, even, you know, Rome fell at some point, you know, can the United States under this maybe. Oh, maybe we just need to keep writing new amendments. I don't know, man. But, uh, well, I mean, we'll see. We're, we're both pretty young cats and, uh, we'll see, we'll see what the future holds and, I mean, yeah, like you said, maybe it's just that positive, not just psychology, but that positive psychology in me, you know, looking for, looking for some type of hope and and some type of mediation, just because, you know, that's what I feel like as on a humanistic level, we need to try to reach some point, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out um, in the future. Uh, But with that being said, my friend, is there any, uh, I, I try to let my guests have like a final word or, you know, just a, a final point that they might may or may not want to get across so do you have any any final remarks for the people listening at home sure i mean we gotta talk about the election that just happened right oh we haven't been talking about that already <laughs> yeah we sure just had, so you know we're recording this uh sunday night the 8th um the morning before uh all the news outlets called joe biden the winner and you know kind of going through some of the data here what's what i find interesting is uh down ballot republicans outran donald trump on almost every occasion um so there's a lot of talk of you know will you know trump run again in 2024 you know how popular is trump or how unpopular is trump it looks like this is more of a rebuke of trump himself than republican policy itself um you know we use maine as an example where uh, I think the final count is Biden's going to win Maine by 
kind of high single digits or low double digits. And Susan Collins outran her uh, Senate opponent, uh, I think Sarah Gideon, by last I saw was eight or nine percent. So she outran Trump by 15 points. And you're seeing that down ballot on other occasions. Um, you know, the North Carolina presidential race was close. The Senate race, not so much. Uh, Cal Cunningham is going to end up losing by, it looks like, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 votes. Um, Biden won, looks like, is going to win Georgia. Um, both Senate, you know, in the two Senate races there, they're eventually going to go to a runoff, but both Republicans won by, um, by I think it was close to 100,000 votes in one and a little under 50,000 in the other. Um, so you're seeing this across the board um, where Republicans kind of outperforming Trump. And I kind of want to see how the Republican Party kind of reconciles with that at its top. Because, um, you know, he has been the Republican Party face for the past four years here. But the evidence is showing that people like Republicans more than they like Trump. Even Republicans like Republicans more than Republicans like Trump. Um, mm. So I think that's going to be interesting to see um, kind of how the party reconciles with losing, you know, the face of the party. Um, do they abandon him? Do they abandon some of the things he said? Do they wholeheartedly endorse him and run somebody like that again in in uh, 24? Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see kind of how the Republican Party moves forward here. I guess so, my friend. But uh, like you said, until then, Democrats will continue to take that presidential nod and the Republicans will kind of fill in the rest of the pieces and hopefully we can can see what happens in the next coming years here. It'll definitely be interesting for sure. Well, sir, thank you for uh, coming on. I, I really, I know I personally Thanks learned a lot. Me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, I know I personally learned a lot just from this conversation and I really hope that uh, the people at home did as well and looking forward to getting it out there. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure.